Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your incarnate word, your son, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word of God. We ask now, Father, by the power of your spirit, you would instruct us from your word. You would instruct us in a way of salvation. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If it was a hot summer July day, and you were in a little hamlet called Tom's River, New Jersey, where Ruth Ann and I both went to high school, different schools, different years, and you wanted to go to a town, another small hamlet, called Seaside Heights, New Jersey, and you had never seen the ocean, and had never sat by the beach, and you wanted to see that particular part of the ocean and that particular beach, you would have one way of getting there. You would have to get in your car, your bike, get on Route 37 and head east towards the ocean, and you would have to cross a bridge. There's no other way to get there, unless, of course, you have a helicopter, and as far as I know, there are no helipads in Seaside Heights. You have to cross that bridge to get there. Now, if you head south, 30, 40 miles, you can cross over to a part of the ocean, but it's not Seaside Heights. You can go up north maybe 20 miles and get to the ocean, but it's not Seaside Heights. To get to Seaside Heights from Tom's River, you have to go across that little bridge. And if it happens to be a crowded weekend, you will sit in traffic and sit and sit and wait and bake in your car. But if you want to get there, there's only one way. You have to get over that bridge. I was thinking about that this week when I saw our hometown, not our hometown, but the towns in which we lived for many years in New Jersey, uh, destroyed by what they're now calling a superstorm, Sandy. Maybe you saw that picture of that roller coaster. It's now a, a water ride. It's engulfed in the water. Well, we've ridden on that roller coaster. I've worked on that boardwalk not 30 yards from that roller coaster. It's a little surreal to see something that you've walked on destroyed. It's, it's surreal. You've never seen it before. Do you realize that sin does more to our lives and our souls than any superstorm or hurricane could ever do to the land. Sin wrecks your life. It wrecks my life. It tears apart families. It wrecks countries. It begins wars. And then wars to finish those wars. And according to the scriptures inspired by Holy God, there is only one way to fix all of that misery. And that's Jesus Christ. He is the way. And that's the very small portion of Scripture we come to today in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. 
And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Just as if you want to go to Seaside Heights via Tongues River, there is one way to get there. If you want to reach salvation, if you want to be redeemed by God, there is one way to get there. I can't get you there. Your wife can't get you there. Your daddy can't get you there. Your last name can't get you there. Your bank account can't get you there. Your lawyer certainly cannot get you there. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can get you there. He is the narrow way. Jesus is talking about himself here. We gain a greater understanding of that from famous passage in John 14. Where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is an absolute statement. Allah cannot get you there. Judaism cannot get you there. Hinduism cannot get you there. Buddhism cannot get you there. Atheism surely isn't going to get you there. Materialism isn't going to get you there. Skepticism will not get you there. Only Christ will get you where you want to be or where you should want to be. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no way around the narrowness of that statement. There is no way around the specificity of that statement. Jesus is saying, this is it. The road starts here. It ends here. You can't get to the other side of Jordan unless you go through me. Now, what that means is not that we follow Christ's example. There are a lot of people who think that. There are a lot of people who will read this passage and couple it with that passage in John 14 and say, okay, I can wrap my mind around that. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Therefore, I have to work my life out just the way Jesus did. I have to live like Jesus did. I have to speak like Jesus did. I have to love like Jesus did. Well, that's true if you want to earn your way to heaven and good luck with that. I don't know if you looked in the mirror sometime this week, but you didn't do that. And you know how I know that? Because you just confessed it in that confession of sin. If you meant those words in any way, shape or form, you confess that you weren't acting like Jesus in any way, shape or form. We have not loved God. With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have we? Did you dedicate every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day this week to the service of God? Don't think so. Did you dedicate every moment of every minute, of every day, of every week, in your life, to loving your neighbor as yourselves? No, we don't. And we forfeit the ability to walk in the way Jesus walked as a way to earn our salvation. You need to make that very clear. You cannot earn your salvation by acting like Jesus. There are a lot of people who try and act like Jesus 
And they're very sincere in trying to do that. And we should commend them for wanting to do that. You could certainly pick an awful lot worse role models than that. One of our famous founding fathers tried to do this, Benjamin Franklin. Arguably the smartest of the batch, certainly the best with his money. And goal, follow the morals of Jesus and Socrates. Maybe you don't know who Socrates is, but he was no Jesus. But Franklin tried to follow the morals of Jesus. And by every account, Franklin led a very moral and upright life. Whether or not he repented and trusted Christ as Savior, I have no idea and I'm not going to speculate. But if you think that you can emulate Christ, if you think that you can act like Christ and think like Christ and talk like Christ every moment of your life and thereby gaining entrance into heaven, um, you will not get there. Because we can't do it. We simply don't do that. So then the only other option of interpreting this is that Christ is the gate that we have to go through. Christ is the door, John 14, that we have to go through. And the question is, okay, what's the key to unlocking that gate? Faith. Do you believe? Do you believe the claims of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is who he said he was? You only have a few choices. One of the choices is you try and get around this gate. Try and get around that door and create your own door. Create your own gate or try and pick the lock somehow and it doesn't work that way. There's only one way to get from Tom's River to Seaside Heights. You've got to go over that bridge. There's only two doors to get into this building. You have to pick one of them when you come through. Now, certainly you could try and get through the windows, but you're not going to have much luck. You have... That's it. Most churches have one central door. Come through. Main entrance. Almost every building will have a main entrance. You may have subsidiary entrances, but where's the main entrance, you ask? Where's the main entrance to the building? Why do you want to go there? Because... That's how you get into the place. And then you find out where you need to go in that big building. Well, there are no side doors to heaven. There are no side doors to the Father. Christ is the only door. You don't have to ask where the main entrance is. You have to ask where's the only entrance. And he is the guy. And we are able to get through that door, through that passageway, only by the gift of faith. By believing not just his message, but believing what he said about himself. Because you see, the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people read the Sermon on the Mount and they're not Christians and they say, well, this is, this is wonderful teaching. Jesus is a fantastic teacher, isn't he? So we can believe what Jesus taught, but then they'll say, but the church has somehow mangled his message over the course of 2,000 years. Well, you really can't do that. That's, that's against the rules. You can't say, I'll pick this and I'll pick that. That's called a buffet table. And when I go through a buffet line, you know I don't pick the cauliflower. I don't pick the Brussels sprouts. Don't pick the beets. Don't touch the squash. Go right for the chicken and the pasta. 
Some of you might like those veggies. Well, Christianity is not a buffet table. You don't walk through and pick what you like. It's served to you. And you eat the body and blood of Christ symbolically or you don't eat at all. You're served that Passover lamb. He is our Passover. You're served that lamb. And you either eat that meal or you don't. There are no, there's nothing else on the menu. He's the narrow gate. And when we look at these words, they're, they're brief and they're short and they're easy to go over quickly, but they're very, very scary. He gives us a command to enter the narrow gate. Why? Because wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. I'm just going to ask you, is destruction what's on your mind? Do you have an appetite for destruction? Is that where you want to go? Is being destroyed by God forever something you want? Does that sound like a good time to you? Because according to Jesus, the gate is wide that leads to that. Now think about that picture. If you have two choices of going through a narrow passageway or a wide passageway to get to the same place, what are you going to pick, generally speaking? The wide one. It's just easier to go through. It's more fun. You don't have to scrunch yourself in. You don't have to go sideways. You just walk through the big door. It's more fun. You know, I don't like those carousel doors, the ones you have to kind of jump in and, and, and spin around in. I, I don't seem to be able, though I'm fairly coordinated, I don't seem to be able to, to get them as quickly as I want. I don't like them. I would much rather go through the big door and have to open it up. Well, I don't have that choice here. There's only one gate. You don't have that choice. Maybe, you know, a lot of children like those things. They like to jump in and spin around and come back out on the other side and jump in and spin around again. You don't have that choice. There's only one gate. There's only one gate. Destruction is at the other side of the wide gate. The wide gate can take many faces. The wide gate can say this. All religions are equal. They all lead to one God. Or maybe you've heard this wonderful thing. Religions are like streams that go to one ocean. All the religions of the world are like roads that go up to the top of one mountain. It's common analogies that people use. That's the wide gate. The narrow gate says there's one way up that mountain. And by the way, the way is pretty tight. It's pretty tight. So I'm going to assume that destruction is not what you're after. You don't have an appetite for destruction. But notice that Jesus says there are many who go in by that. There are many who go by the way of destruction. Uh, there's no way around that word many. It means a lot of. It means a lot. Because narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are a few who find it. Now we come against a different problem. Because you see, the modern church tells us that salvation is easy. I mean, isn't that what I just kind of told you? You come in, 
a, a filthy wretch. I've said that many times. You come in a filthy wretch, guilty of all crimes. Isn't that what I just said? All the crimes of man, all the sins of God. By a simple act of faith and confession of sin, it's all wiped away. That is what I said, and that's what I've said many times, right? That sounds easy, correct? Well, it is. We have to get a little theological here for a minute to make sense of this. When the person comes in off the street, a filthy wretch filled with sins and crimes, they're not justified before God. They're in his court and they are unjust. They can't stand rightly in that court. Give you a very easy definition of justification. It's God declaring you pardoned in his court. That's easy. Do you know why? Because you don't have anything to do with it. You can't make the judge pardon you, can you? You can beg the judge for pardon, but the judge is the only one who can actually say, I pardon you. If you were on death row, you could plead to the governor to pardon you. You could plead for years, but it's only the governor who can say, I pardon you. You're passive. You receive the pardon. Do you follow that? You can plead, but you cannot effect the action. The governor has got to pardon you. God is the governor of the universe. That initial act of faith is where we're justified before God. We're declared righteous in his court. We are adopted into his family. That's the easy part. The more difficult part is what follows. Because that fictional person who hopefully someday won't be fictional, I really want to see that happen someday. Right here. I want to see somebody come stumbling in and get saved. Right? I'm just going to point that pew there where nobody sits. That front pew where nobody sits except the elders once a month when they serve communion. I want to see somebody stumble in, stand right there in front of me and trust Christ right there. And that would be great. But then I'd have to take him or her to my office and explain, well, your journey's just begun. Okay? Jesus has caught his fish. Now it's time for that fish to get cleaned. And that's not a very fun process. That's what Jesus is talking about here, about the way being difficult. You know who had it easiest in terms of salvation in history? Thief on the cross. That's a bad way to go. Get crucified. You die slow, painful death. He didn't have to worry about his sanctification. You didn't have to worry about church sessions. You didn't have to worry about any of that. All he had to do was hang there on that cross, die, and Jesus promised, today you'll be with me in paradise. Easy way of it. Perfect example of justification. Now let's take the Apostle Paul. Yeah, a little, a little differently. He got justified just the same way as the thief on the cross. He got knocked off a donkey. Got justified by faith. And if you read the book of Acts after that, it doesn't look like Paul had an easy day from there on in. Shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, left for dead, tried by Romans, tried by Jews, and eventually beheaded. His sanctification was not easy. And we even have that prophecy in the early book of Acts, early part of the book of Acts, where the risen Christ uh, tells the messenger to Paul, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. 
None of you are the thief on the cross. And none of you are quite the Apostle Paul. You're not going to have quite as hard a road as he did. But the process of sanctification is what Jesus is getting here. You see, think about the parable of the sower. There's that one, it's really the parable of the soils. One soil receives the word with joy. But then persecutions come and they, they walk away from the message. And the other soil receives it gladly as well, but the cares of this world grow thorns and choked it out. That's what we have to worry about here in our culture. You're not going to get persecuted, at least not now, but the cares of this world, the worries of this world, all the recreations and entertainments and material things we have, they can become thorns that choke out your neck. Looking at those hurricane victims, you're reminded they lost so much. If you have three cars, you have to worry about three cars. If you have one, you only have to worry about one. If you have three homes, you have to worry about three homes. If you only have one, you only have to take care of one. I think it's an ancient uh, Japanese samurai statement. Every now and again, an unbeliever will get something right. It says, it's not the man, this is a paraphrase, it's not the man who has the most that's the happiest. It's the man who needs the least. I mean, have you ever met someone who has got so much stuff and they're just not content, just need more? And you meet someone who's you know, pretty content with a, a meal of uh, potato soup and bread. There's people in this world, you can feed them filet mignon from now until kingdom come and they're always going to complain and never be happy. Our animals are spoiled. Our pets are spoiled. There's been times when my cat's eaten so much I've thrown him a piece of steak and he's walked away from it. Cat walking away from sirloin. There's something wrong with that picture. When there's millions of children who would die for that scrap of meat. So where is your heart today? Are you willing to walk the road of sanctification, which is not easy, but it leads to life? You see, there's this crazy thought in certain sections of the American church. It goes like this. You trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Now you need to make him Lord of your life. Let me, let me just tell you what John MacArthur says about that. You don't make Jesus Lord of anything. You can't make Jesus the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of your life, whether you want to accept it or not. Do you understand that even those who go to destruction, Jesus is still the Lord of their life? He is still their king. Do you understand that the devil is not in charge of hell? That God is in charge of hell? As terrifying as that is. You hear people say, hell is where God isn't. God is everywhere. Hell is where God has no mercy. All you get is justice. That's that's awfully terrifying to me. I don't want God's justice. Christ's got that justice. I'll gladly 
Let him take God's justice and I'll take the grace. Thank you very much. You think it's hard to get children to eat their vegetables unless you bribe them with a piece of chocolate cake. It's much harder to withstand the rigors of hell. That's what's talking about here. Many, many want the easy way of salvation. Even many so-called Christians want to be saved, but then not work out their salvation. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Apostle Peter says, do all you can to make your calling and election sure. How can you make your election sure? Are you going to appeal to the Father and see if there's any hanging chads like the election of 2000? You can't do that. What does that mean? That means that Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. You're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk, that He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If someone says, you know what, I trusted Jesus Christ ten years ago, but I haven't been able to stop stealing. I haven't been able to stop the drinking and the narcotics. I haven't been able to stop cheating on my wife. I haven't been able to stop not providing for my children. Listen, if you know somebody like that, you need to sit them down and say, I don't know what they told you, but you're not a Christian because there's no proof of the pudding. You see, quitting the narcotics and getting a job doesn't earn your salvation. It proves that God has already begun to clean you up. The good works follow. They're part of God's redemptive plan. And that's the issue here. If we are going to be saved, we need to accept God's redemptive plan. And that redemptive plan has a number of parts to it. But the two basic parts are you get justified by faith and then you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So now let me ask you this. How are you doing with working out your salvation with fear and trembling? How are you doing with justification? There's been stories of people who have been in churches for decades and then didn't realize until they were very old that they hadn't really gotten the message. God doesn't care how long you've been on a church roll. He doesn't care about any of that. Well, he cares about it. But it doesn't earn you any merit. It doesn't, doesn't give you extra special status in God's kingdom. Have you trusted Christ alone for your salvation and nothing else? If that's the case, then are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Paul says this, mortify the deeds of the flesh. That word mortify means literally to put to death. So that person who comes in and gets saved, they're saved now, they're justified, they have a whole lot of bad habits to kill, and those habits are not fun. How are you doing with your gossip? How are you doing with your... Envy. How are you doing with your unforgiveness? How are you doing with your forgiveness? 
You get paid for eight hours of work. You work the full eight hours. There's a lot of parts to this. There's only one way to Seaside Heights from Towns River, New Jersey. You have to cross that bridge. There's only one way to salvation. And that's through the blood of Christ. Fall on him. Follow him. And he will lead you home. Would you pray with me? Lord our God, we ask for the grace to believe and for the grace to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and thereby entering in through the narrow way. Amen.